The forest is a lot more than a scenic backdrop. Coming up, Zach St. George reminds us that tree species have their own personalities, and some are trying to migrate to escape the effects of climate change and us. This kind of background thing is actually as dynamic and capable of movement as we are. Modernization is changing the look of Asia from the Far East to the stands. Kevin Kelly tells us how he organized a massive multi-year project to document what's changing as traditions disappear. There was development happening right before my eyes where I would come by and see a rice paddy and then come by a couple of weeks later and there'd be a factory there. And Seth Kantner tells us what's reassuring about the seasons in Arctic Alaska where he lives, where a changing climate has had a head start. The sun never sets and the amount of wildflowers is shocking. It's just ahead on today's Earth Day edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. His futuristic view of what the Internet would become informed his work at the Whole Earth Catalog and Wired magazine. But before all that, Kevin Kelly started a massive project inviting people to photograph the changes that were happening all over Asia. He tells us about his nearly 50-year-old Vanishing Asia project in just a bit. And Seth Kantner tells us why he loves living in Kotzebue, Alaska, just north of the Arctic Circle and above the tree line. But let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a look at how different species of trees are changing, along with the planet we all call home. You could call Zach St. George a tree hugger, and he wouldn't take offense. Zach has distilled years of scientific reporting and debate into a fascinating book, and that introduces us to five particular species of trees in a way that we get to know each of them almost as a community, a community battling environmental challenges, and a community that's literally on the move. His book is The Journeys of Trees, a story about forests, people, and the future. Zach joins us now to explore how, as travelers in nature, we can actually see trees as a bioculture or a community. And good travelers are all about connecting that way. Zach, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me. So reading your book, I am just so turned on by this whole frontier of appreciation we can have by seeing trees in a way that is more like it's a community. Each species is a community. In your book, you talk about as they deal with challenges presented to them by climate change and so on, the community can sometimes pack up and move to friendlier territory, but they do it slowly as trees have to, a community where they grow in the direction where it makes more sense. We hear in Europe about how slowly countries in the north are able to grow wine that couldn't grow it before because it's becoming more, you know, hospitable for those uh, vineyards and so on. It's kind of a, a story about travel in very slow motion. It seems to me your book is kind of like um, travel writing. Tell us just in a nutshell what your book is inspired by and, and the importance of us gaining an appreciation of forests with this new broader perspective. Yeah, so... As people who like to travel know, you step off the airplane or out of the car and you look around and, you know, you'll have a different cityscape and maybe the signs will be in a different language. Things will look a little different. And and one of the ways that things will look different a lot of the times is you'll have a different flora. So you'll have a different community of plants and and trees in particular are a really big marker of place. Certain trees are characteristic of certain places. And so what's happening now, though, is that as the climate changes, uh, the places where trees and other plants, for that matter, will live is changing. So 
yeah, you know, you'll have uh, places in northern Europe growing wine where it could never grow before. Maple syrup production is moving in North America. So this book is really kind of an exploration of movement of these really important markers of place. Now, Zach, after reading your book, when I walk through a forest again, I'm going to have a different perspective. I'm going to see it not as a bunch of individual trees, but as a community of trees that are struggling to survive, a community of trees that that has deep roots, uh, pretty much literally, a community of trees that's been there for eons. Is that a a good perspective to, to nurture, is this sense that a forest has its own personality? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, each species moves around over time, and these forests are collections of many species, and, and so each member of a forest is kind of a, an independent actor. So maybe at this certain point in time, you'll have one group of characters, and then at another time, you'll have another set of species and, and characters. And um, a forest is very much a, a transient, moving, shifting thing. Hey, Zach, when I have a party, I love to gather interesting people together, and then we always have a a little time where we make a circle, and everybody just introduces themselves so they can be better appreciated. And uh, let's do that with our trees right now, because in your book, you feature five species of trees. Let's pretend we're having a party. It's you and me and these trees, and you know these trees and love these trees (laughs) and appreciate them, but I've never met them before. Take a minute or two for each species that wants to become my friend and tell me how they are distinct and, and likable. Can you do that at, for our little party? Sure. So let's start off this big tall guy, Giant Sequoia. Who's he? Yeah, so Giant Sequoia is kind of a, uh, I guess, a big personality, the biggest tree in the world, uh, one of the oldest, kind of all the things that people love about trees in general taken to this very superlative end. And so, you know, many of the early conservation efforts in the United States were around giant sequoia just because it's such a giant, amazingly charismatic tree. Charismatic, yeah, beloved. Sequoias are are kind of beloved. Is that just because of their size? I think it is hard to overstate their size when you see them in person. It's pretty incredible. Okay, now there's a guy right next to him. His name is Ash, and uh, there's a joke. It's everybody saying, kiss your Ash goodbye, because Ash is in, in very deep trouble environmentally. Tell us about Ash. What should we appreciate about this tree? Yeah, so Ash is, in this context, is actually 16 different species Kind of a background species, you know, its wood is very much uh, used for many different uses, but it's one of those trees that's just kind of everywhere, uh, not super noticeable physically, but what's happening now is a invasive beetle is killing off ash, all 16 different species across North America, and so it's one of those things like... Now that ash is going missing, people are really realizing um, how important it was. Damn those invasive beetles. There's another uh, person at the the circle here, black spruce. What should we know about black spruce? Yeah, so where I grew up in in Alaska, black spruce was um, kind of characteristic, uh, kind of a a grungy tree, lots of kind of small, scrawny... uh, covered in moss and fuzz, just this very kind of thin, scraggly-looking tree. And um, 
covers much of Canada, stretching all the way from you know Newfoundland to Alaska. So just black spruce makes up these massive forests. And so it's a really good example of a tree that uh, over the last 10,000 years since the ice uh, retreated after the end of the last ice age has become just amazingly widespread and wow. common. So it's, black spruce has been quite effective at moving into friendly territory and thriving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. We're talking with Zach St. George. He's the author of The Journeys of Trees, and he's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll also find Zach's byline on occasion in publications like Atlantic, Scientific American, and Outside Magazine. His website is zachstgeorge.com. That's Z-A-C-H-S-T-George.com. Zach, thank you for this introduction to these fascinating characters at our tree party. Uh, how about Monterey Pine? I, I hope Monterey Pine's a little a little cheerier. Monterey Pine is another tree that seems to have kind of gotten stuck at the end of the last ice age. And it, it grows in just five little parts of California and a couple islands off the coast of Mexico. But lucky for Monterey Pine, people found it and carried it around the world. And it turns out to be a very fast-growing and useful timber tree across much of the southern hemisphere. So there are Monterey pines all over Australia, New Zealand, uh, Chile, South Africa, all these places with Mediterranean climates similar to California's, and it has become perhaps one of the most common trees in the world. So there is a case, Zach, where a tree has had a constructive alliance with human beings, and humans have actually contributed substantially to the the widespreadness or the health of that species? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's you could almost think of it as, as being analogous to something like wheat or perhaps apple trees, which were confined, I think, to Kazakhstan before people realized how delicious they were. So, you know, it's something where it, it has benefited tremendously from human intervention. And that's not an unambiguous good, though. I mean, there's um, a lot of places in the world where people wish Monterey Pines were not. Hmm. Now, you know, in your book, correct me if I'm wrong, but I came away with the impression that a third of the planet is covered with trees and half of the tree coverage has been destroyed by human beings. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's about right. We are the biggest force working to shape the arrangement of trees and, for that matter, every other kind of life on this planet, whether it's by actively moving things around or by cutting trees down and changing their habitat. And, yeah, we are absolutely the the biggest force. You know, everybody likes to talk about the different generations. And in your book, you mentioned the stages of life of a tree, which, which I think will add to the conversation of our party. You talk about the seed, the sapling, and the mature tree. It's, it's just really um, quite exciting to, to be mindful of these different stages. When you think of the seed, what do you think of? Yeah, the seed is kind of, you know, infinite potential. It's been a human symbol of potential, of course, for a long time. You think of the acorn and the oak as kind of a classic pairing of something small that grows to something big. My goodness, um, think of the oak tree. Yeah, and then, and then also a sapling would be the next thing. That would be our, our kids going to grade school, I suppose. What's all about a sapling? What do we learn from that? Yeah, I mean, a sapling also, I suppose, is potential, but it's sort of proof that a seed has, has arrived in the right place. 
And then the mature tree, that's something humans have a hard time really grasping, but the mature tree, it's, it makes us seem fragile and fleeting. Right. The giant sequoia is kind of the the most superlative example of that, I guess, of just the fact mm. that their life exists on scales that's almost incomprehensible from a human point of view. For you, what would be the best souvenir or lesson that we can take home from reading your book? I think what I learned in the course of writing this book is to, you know, when you see an individual tree, but especially in a forest, to kind of think of it as a transient, moving thing and and just sort of realize that it is moving, it is in motion, it is kind of reflecting our changing planet. And this background thing is actually as dynamic and capable of movement as we are. Zach, thank you for introducing the players in this party. Thanks again for this uh, broadening our perspective. And you do that through your book, The Journeys of Trees. Thanks a lot, Zach, and best wishes. Thanks so much for having me. We have links to Zach St. George's articles on the practicalities of addressing a changing climate at ricksteves.com slash radio. In a bit, Washington State's first Indigenous Poet Laureate shares a poem about salmon with us. And we hear what it's like to live near the Arctic Circle. But next, we look at what's disappearing in Asia on Travel with Rick Steves. Travelers often feel a sadness that as the world becomes more uniform, affluent, globalized, and modern, beautiful lifestyles, elaborate rituals, and colorful traditions will die. That's certainly happening in Asia, where in the last generation, something like a billion villagers have abandoned a life of dazzling color and ritual where palaces were built of mud brick and houses were shared with animals and life was just like it was centuries ago in order to join the modern parade in the urbanized world. Well, Kevin Kelly saw this coming and wanted to capture vanishing Asia with photographs while that was still possible. He began photographing Asia in 1972 and 47 years and 35 countries later in 2019, he wrapped up the project. Kevin has completed his mission by organizing his 9,000 favorite photographs into a massive tome of 1,000 pages. It's three volumes in a slipcase. It's a massive trilogy that weighs 30 pounds, cost about uh, 250 bucks or something like that. To get lost in his work, it's a trip back in what is, to a great extent, now long gone Asia. He joins us today to tell us the hows and whys of this amazing project, Vanishing Asia. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a real treat. Thanks for having me, Rick. I appreciate it. You know, it's a treat for me because way back in, I don't know, around in the late 80s or 1990 or something, when I was uh, basically just getting going, I traveled from Seattle down to San Francisco, and I, I guess I was just trying to meet futurists and hippies and travelers and people with an impressive passion and a vision and who were doing amazing things. And I spent a night on your boat in Sausalito, right? Yes, that's right. It was a houseboat down to the <laughs> pier, South 40 Pier. In Sausalito, and I was working at the Whole Earth Catalog at the time. I remember I thought that was really cool. You're, you're yes. like an editor at the Whole Earth Catalog. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah, this was in the pre-digital days when we were still printing on newsprint. We were basically printing the internet on newsprint. That was it. That was it. And it was yeah. it was pretty um, out there. It was, it was sort of future-reaching. But I left your boat thinking, this is a very interesting man. He's going to do some <laughs> very interesting stuff. I've never interviewed anybody who's wrapping up a 47-year-long project, and it is great to have you here. Tell us, you know, why and what was your agenda with Vanishing Asia? Because you've dedicated your life to it. 
it's been a side project for 50 years. I began when I was barely 20 years old, and I had never been out of New England area. You know, I grew up in the 50s and 60s in New Jersey, and I, I tried to convey to my kid how parochial the world was growing up. I'd never eaten Chinese food. I never held chopsticks. I didn't, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't, we didn't have Chinese around. It was just weirdly insular. And then I was invited by a friend from high school to visit him in Taiwan because he was studying Chinese to be a missionary. And I went to Taiwan and it blew my mind. Taiwan, 1972, was a very different place. It was, everything was open. There was development happening right before my eyes where I would come by and see a rice paddy and then come by a couple of weeks later and there'd be a factory there. Yeah. So immediately it was like, this stuff is changing so fast. Yeah. And everything was different. There's this different way of thinking, different way of doing, which I would completely alien to me. It was like going to another planet and then eventually like going on a time machine, going backwards. So I dropped out of college to travel, and that was my education. So instead of going to college, I went to Asia. By the way, when you were talking about that experience in Taiwan, it reminded me I, I was in some airport in Southeast Asia when I was way back then, and my flight was delayed like for eight hours. And I just thought, well, I'll just, I'll just walk away from the airport. And it's a modern airport, and I walked across the freeway and into the jungle, and there was a village, you know, was the juxtaposition of that was just yeah. striking and the contrast. And it was like one is zooming into the future and the other is getting buried by all of yes. that progress. And, that's right. and what you've documented over the last generation is how rapidly that's happening. I was wondering, it's vanishing Asia. What about Africa? What about Latin America? What's special about Asia in that regard? Yeah. I, I never actually really made it to, to Africa to travel uh, very much there, nor um, South America. And I was sort of mesmerized Mm -hmm. hypnotized by Asia, and even more so than, say, Europe. One was because it was a very, very rich culture that had a very complex set of traditions that reached all the way from the costume to the architecture to the food to how they thought that seemed to me to be other and different in a very rich way, not, not kind of a superficial way. And they had, you know, thousands of years of doing it that way. And then there was this huge diversity and variety where, where you could literally go over a hill yeah. and they'd be in a different language and they'd be doing things slightly different. So you keep going over the hill to the next border and it was just this intense density of otherness. And then there was just the scale of the things. Half the people alive on this planet today live in Asia. I mean, right. it's, it's, a, it's a very, very deep well, that stampede to the cities is depopulating the countryside, and it's just, in two generations, kids don't even know what grandma did. And I mean, I see that in my European roots, right. but it's even more dramatic, I think, as Asian modernizes. You capture with your photographs, you, you know, like, just capturing timeless moments that are not timeless because they could be gone, but like uh, Japanese moments, a monk standing silently to beg. The staffs of pilgrims outside of temples, mm -hmm. fragile wooden homes, uh, mm -hmm. elegant lunches in bento boxes, food displayed in restaurant windows. Uh, that must have been really fun for you to see that there's, oh, here's something that, that they do in Japan. They arrange things in yeah. grids. Yes. Talk, about the, <laughs> talk about the grids. Do you remember that page? Yes. Yes. This is a peculiar pattern I noticed going to Japan many times is they light grids. They like to put grids on the outside of their homes, kind of like grills and 
bars and they liked to arrange things in grids uh, at a temple. They'll have all the sake barrels yeah, grids. put on a grid or when they're hanging the little um, charms, temple charms, they will be on a grid. And so there was this, you know, I don't know why, but there was this pattern that they seemed to enjoy. And I was kind of recognizing and capturing that because over time, those things were disappearing. Yeah. And even the having shown to people who live in Japan some of my earlier photographs from Japan, they're like saying, oh, my gosh, I remember that. They don't do that anymore. Like yeah. the way that they make tatami mats by hand. I mean, you go to um, the Western Wall in Jerusalem or you go to some wait, wait. church in, in Europe that's filled with uh, little messages to a saint, and it's it's chaos. But in Japan, all the prayers are on twists of paper organized like an like a grid. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are many, yeah, there are many patterns like that, and those are just sort of um, baked into it. And they may not even notice it themselves until you kind of bring your attention to it. That's why I photograph. I photograph to force myself to look. Yeah. It's a way of forcing myself to go out and to pay attention. And the byproduct happens to be something that I can share with others to show, hey, look what I noticed. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kevin Kelly. And Kevin has spent decades collecting photographs from Asia, all the way across Asia. And he's published it in a three-volume collection of 9,000 photos. It's 1,000 pages of otherness in vivid and living color. It's called Vanishing Asia. And today we're learning about this project uh, and Kevin Kelly's mission. Uh, getting back into your just huge array of images from Asia. Mm -hmm. I love alternate transport. That's one of my favorite things about Asia more than any place I've traveled, is just there's a world of different ways to get around, and there's this sense of, yeah, there's room, hop on, you know, and colorful little three-wheeled taxis that are powered by, like, a lawnmower engine right. almost, it seems like, and bicycles and foot-powered pedicabs. Tell us a little bit about some of the memorable alternative modes of transportation that you featured. Yes. Well, I, I will describe them, and sometimes they're kind of like um, tricycles that are kind of built up and have an extra seat or sidecars to a motorcycle. Right. There are I've taken rides, uh, as you probably have, on tractors, farm tractors, because they may be the only vehicle in that uh, yeah. on that area. But what's interesting to me about the reason why I, I kind of captured it, it maybe a larger reason to do the book, is that even though these are kind of vehicles you might only find in Asia right now, I believe that they have a little bit of a seed of an idea for our future transportation. We've seen the, the rise of kind of segways trying to do something in yeah. scooters. You, you see tuk-tuks in Lisbon now. Right, exactly. They're, they're, they're moving in. There's these, it's just small as beautiful in a, in a modern world, I think. Right, and so, and so what I see Asia and the old ways is I am not nostalgic trying to prevent them from going away because that's, but I think there's some seeds of an idea, a design solution that we might want to pay attention to as we design the new things. So as we try to make uh, something in between a scooter and a car, yeah. these vehicles in Asia have a suggestion of what we might want to uh, look at. You know, I like the idea that we have things in our heritage, um, teepees in the United States going back two or 300 right. years. Uh, there's teepees all over the world, aren't there? That's right. That kind of uh, circular Mm -hmm. I tell you, when you live in a circular room, it changes how you think about the huh. universe. And that's something that the um, aboriginals have always said. And in the modern world, we have the yurts or the, um, the gurs, they call in Mongolia, which mm -hmm. are these portable, they're, they're kind of portable, circular 
rooms or houses. Their entire they have yeah. kitchen and, and sleep. By the quarters. nature of nomadic lives, that's and right. You just wrap it up. And the same thing in in the Arab world. You've got these black tents, these camel hair tents that are talked about in the Bible, and they're right. still there today. Exactly. And they've got to be mobile because these are nomads and. The whole idea of nomadic life is sort of against the notion of government. That's right. So nomadic people are endangered like these traditions. Throughout the world, the one exception is in Mongolia, where they have decided to try and embrace nomadism. And here's the technology that has transformed Mongolia. Not just the cell phone, which is important. It's the motorcycle. Hmm. People don't realize uh, yes. how powerful motorcycles are because you don't need roads suddenly. You can just go along a path. You can move loads, uh, timber, uh, huh. market produce, bring it back. You can go up through a mountain on a trail. And what this has allowed the, the nomads to do is to teach the kids to school. Kevin Kelly has organized a massive photo collection, by far the largest and heaviest set of books I've ever received. It documents changes to traditions and cultures across Asia since the 1970s with some 9,000 photographs in three oversized volumes. As an early adopter of the Internet, Kevin explores futurism on his website with the motto, Over the long term, the future is decided by optimists. His URL is simply kk.org. You mentioned earlier that you're not romantic about this. It's mm. it's it's not good riddance, but it's like no regrets because this is the quandary that us romantic travelers have. You want to go down to the well and see women with jugs on their heads, but they don't want to have jugs on their heads. They want to have <laughs> running right. water in their house, exactly. right? <laughs> so you made the point that, you know, a romantic old home without nails, with beautifully worked joints and so on, it's an amazing thing to behold. But it's not an amazing thing to live in. It's drafty and it's cold. Right. And these people quickly trade that away for a humble concrete box with Wi-Fi in a, right. in a mega city of 5 million people. Exactly. And what do they get out of that movement is something that's really intangible. So they've left their homes in these beautiful villages that have vistas of the Himalayas and they're oh. eating organic food and they know who they are and they have strong communities and strong families. It's like... What are they getting by moving into this gritty little hovel in the city? They're getting a choice and options. They can be a mathematician. They can be a web designer. They don't have to be a farmer, a blacksmith, huh. or the farmer's wife. They actually have a choice about wow. and a freedom to be something different. And that is so powerful. And that's why they're moving into the cities with one-way bus tickets is because there's more choices to be something in the city. And so what we want to have is we want to keep some of that differences that these places have, the costuming. Mm -hmm. We want to retain that into this into these city environments as well. Wow. It's, you know, if you were to graph change, there's always change to a certain degree, but it is skyrocketing in this last 50 yes. years, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's, there's no turning back. There's no, there's no turning back. And so the question is, are we going to converge and diverge as we become more global and I think at the base level, uh, we're going to kind of converge. Most people are going to be living in, you know, square apartments with Wi-Fi and running water, wearing T-shirts and sneakers. But at the higher levels, once you have all these things provided, the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, Maslow's hierarchy, you have the base ones all satisfied. Yeah. I think people are going to diverge 
and what they think they're about and what they're doing and what the meaning is of purpose and, and what they actually spend their time on. That's the otherness. Kind of, that's the otherness that's that the you otherness. embrace. You embrace right. that in your Vanishing Asia project. Yes. And it's the otherness. So we can't fight modernity, but we can, we can strive for that otherness. Right. Right. Kevin, we've just got a couple minutes left, and I'd like to quickly review a couple of points that I picked up from your work. You noted that different communities are at different stages in modernizing, mm-hmm. and you had a way to measure how far into the past a society had survived. What was your rule of thumb? My rule of thumb was looking for whether they had retained costumes. Costume, the traditional native clothing, the style, the textures, the fabrics, the, the embroidery was the first to go. Okay, so there's a sequence of things that, That's that right. are, are casualties of this modernity. Exactly. The first thing would be elaborate costumes because that's really, in practicality, it keeps women down and it keeps people poor. Yes, exactly. If, if you think about what it took to weave cloth by mm-hmm. hand, it's mm. just unbelievable the amount of hours. Yeah. So that's the first to go. And, th- and then there's architecture, mm-hmm. um, making homes. Most people made homes with stuff they could find around, whatever was indigenous materials. As we said, this can be beautiful and really harmonized, but it can actually not be the ideal living conditions in terms of air conditioning, not right. there, running water, not there. So so we, we lose native uh, and traditional architecture, second, and then we go to food, and then we can go to language. Because languages are dying every year. People don't know it, but languages die every year. Yes, <laughs> And every um, year. that means less diversity, less otherness, and just like small publishers can't survive, you got to be part of a big <laughs> publishing house, just like you name it in whatever industry. you got to compete in the global marketplace. People want it cheap, and people want it fast, and people want it good. That means economy of scale, and that means uniformity, and that means good by otherness. Something else you noted was you could kind of measure where a society was by how much metal is being used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of my little indicators of, of how remote a place was, was how common metal was. Usually people would have metal pots, but they may not have much more. So like, was there metal for the hinges? Was there metal being used for any of the architecture or framing and stuff? And so in the really remote places, metal was very scarce, expensive, and so there wasn't much of it. And that was like, oh my gosh, this is a a time machine here because this is like 100, 200 years ago. You know... I'd like to just close with your thoughts on this. Uh, It's looking like the 21st century will be the century of Asia. And is that going to be with or without its rich past? You know, I think in the last couple of years, traveling into Asia, which I do all the time, I've noticed that people are have enough wealth now, they've come enough that they're now starting to think about saving Mm. and at least in a tokenized way, enough to remind people mm-hmm. certain things. They're not bulldozing everything. They're going to mm-hmm. bulldoze most of it, but retain some of it. So I think it's possible that um, Asia will continue to race into the future as fast as they are and going faster than we are in many cases, and yet look back and try to keep some of the best of what they've had from the past. I think that's happening to a small degree now and will continue to increase. Well, congratulations and thank you for... I just love it when somebody has a passion and recognizes something and just does it. I don't know how this is going to pan out for you to monetize all of this, but you have contributed hugely. And I hope you're right. I hope that we can modernize in a smart way and not lose the otherness that you celebrate in your book, 
Vanishing Asia. Well, thank you, Rick. I'm real honored to be here. Thank you. The future may be skating on thin ice in the Alaskan Arctic, where climate changes started upsetting the balance of nature decades ago. It's the home base that Seth Kantner loves and wants you to understand as well. He's with us next on Travel with Rick Steves. He's one of the chosen few to be raised in the wilds of the Alaskan Arctic. Ever since his parents built a homemade sod house on the Kobuk River, Seth Kantner has identified intimately with the lands he grew up in. Today, he's a respected Alaskan writer and photographer who also works as a commercial fisherman and wilderness guide to help others taste and see what nature wants to show us about the Arctic. Seth is joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves from his home in Kotzebue. It's the gathering point for excursions up the region's rivers and into the gates of the Arctic, Kobuk Valley National Park, and the Brooks Range. Seth, thanks for being with us. Likewise. I appreciate it, Rick. I really do. So tell us just briefly where you live. It's just fascinating to me uh, when I look at the map, your corner of the United States. I was born and raised on the Kobuk River, which is about 100 miles above the Arctic Circle. These last maybe quarter of a century, I've spent part of my time on the coast, which is um, Kotzebue, a town of 3,000, probably about 40 miles above the Arctic Circle. Um, I tell people that peninsula that almost touches Siberia. I live on the north side of that. Yeah, it's it's home and everything is normal. <laughs> and uh, then when I go everything to, is normal. <laughs> uh, when I go to the lower 48, I don't understand how people survive the harsh conditions of traffic and, you know, where to find food and, and that type of thing. Isn't that interesting? So there's there's a bit of culture shock, but also a bit of nature shock. We would wonder how you survive and you would wonder how we survive. Oh, I'm I'm the one who's right. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this then, because I'm fascinated by, you know, the land of the midnight sun and all this kind of thing and, and long, dark winters. Let's talk about winter north of the Arctic in, in Alaska. What's it like in the darkest depths of winter? Does everybody just fly down to California? <laughs> well, my parents moved to uh, the big island of Hawaii, so I do go down to see them. But, yeah, uh, my dad always said, uh, you know, that more and more winters, they sort of pile up in your system and it's it's harder to face the, the sun going away. Here, you know, just above the Arctic Circle, we lose the sun or barely lose the sun for a couple of weeks. But those uh, other weeks around that, it's just maybe this little bit of orange on the horizon, maybe uh, 19 hours of darkness. That's pretty tough. I When I talk to people about visiting Alaska, I I ask them immediately, you know, how much do you want to spend and, and what do you want to experience? And I think the storms of midwinter are definitely something to experience. It's um, as close yeah. as you could probably get to Mars or <laughs> or something like that. So, Seth, when you, do have the, when you do have the dark, long nights, is there a longer twilight than we have here in the lower 48? It seems like, I mean, we just have a short twilight. Yeah, it's beautiful, uh, beautiful sky, uh, pastel uh, blues and oranges and greens, really beautiful winter light that stretches on and on because the the angle of the sun, it's just below the horizon for for many hours. I went down Mm -hmm. to Seattle in in November once and I was, uh, I couldn't wait to get home to the Arctic where at least I could see all the different colors in the sky. So 
there's a lot of darkness, but then there's a lot of northern lights at night too. So I used to run my dog team at, you know, full moon or, or northern lights. And, and there's a lot of uh, stray light from the stars and moon uh, bouncing off all the snow and ice. So what is that like? My sister ran the Iditarod, and uh, I just picture her under the moon, just that rhythm. And she's like with the dogs. They're a tight team. They know each other, and there's that shushing, and, and, and there's the silhouetted trees, and the stars brighter than you could ever imagine if you lived in a big city in the lower 48. Tell me what it's like to be um, mushing your dogs in the middle of the winter in the dark. I think it's it's great what you described, but you're describing when the wind's not blowing and you can see your your lead dog in front of you and and so there's just a lot of variables but but those cold still nights um you can hear a a ptarmigan you know practically a mile away pecking at a, a willow bud it's just so the air is so frozen and um there's no bugs and you you forget there's uh, even an insect in the world and and barely any birds. And so, yeah, there's no stray sound and in the sound of your dog's breathing or the, the runners on the snow and, and everything, every time you step on snow, it's just some form of squeaky sound of, of this cold um, crystals. And I can't believe when I go to the lower 48, all the, the noise, it's, it's terrifying at, uh. at first. And then if you come here in the winter and and it's not blowing and storming, it's a, it's a silence like nowhere else, uh, I would suspect, on Earth. You know, Seth, I, I get this sense or have this hunch that if you're trying to get from A to B in a dog team and the sea is frozen, it's kind of an express lane to go out and, and go across the sea rather than on the land trail. Is, is there something to that? Yeah, especially uh, like here at Kotzebue Sound, I in the fall when it freezes up, I always joke that it's the, the biggest parking lot in the world. The, the inner sound here freezes rather smooth or, or can. And then, you know, you can go and travel in all directions and, and, and cover large distances rather quickly. And I guess I'm saying that rather quickly compared to summer and, and spring and fall when you're, um, you can't do that. Yeah, so... The, the way the bird flies, yeah, that's it's the same as the way as the human goes when you're dog racing across that frozen w- Wintertime, yeah. And I've never raced dogs. I used to have uh, dogs when I was uh, younger, and, and that was for trapping and hunting. And, and then all the food came from the land. So, you know, there's just this constant tension of the dog food pile, basically frozen fish and frozen meat. And, and uh, every day you kind of go out and hunt and or, or set nets under the ice for um, for dog food to feed that team for the, the every day of the year. Oh, yeah. and so th- that provided uh, this huge connection to the land that when snowmobiles arrived and by and large everyone switched to snowmobiles, um, that was a huge piece of the connection that went away. Yeah, the arrival of snowmobiles, I would think, would have an impact on that. Seth Kantner writes about the Alaskan Arctic from his home base in Kotzebue. You'll find links to his books and articles at sethcantoner.com. So you talk about extreme cold like it's like it's just a way of life. It's not a big deal. You even wrote about that frostbite, quote, is a way of life where you live. Tell us more about extreme cold and, and how do you manage with it? I have a harder time now. I've had too much frostbite, so my fingers are kind of don't work anymore and and uh, my face doesn't like it anymore. But when I was a kid, you know, being a white boy, I desperately wanted 
to be, uh, you know, brown and, uh, and native. And, and I uh, would get as much frostbite on my face as possible because it makes brown scabs that mean you're a tough, cool hunter. And um, <laughs> probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. But surviving cold, you know, the clothing and the, the caribou skin uh, parkas of the old days or, or muckluck, caribou uh, legging mucklucks were important. And, and now we, we order, you know, store-bought warm clothing, but you're still kind of dressed like a spaceman in the winter. And I joke, you know, you, you don't go out the door without putting on a $1,000 worth of uh, puffy clothing and then, and then fight to break the ice around the door so you can jump out into the, the storm. And, and there's a, so there's a, there's a balance between knowing what you're doing and dressing properly. But then psychologically, it's incredibly important not to be afraid of the cold. Respectful is one thing, but if you, if you get scared, that probably shuts down your, your blood vessels a little. And then, um, and then probably your, your wise thoughts go away. And keeping moving is incredibly important. I, I say, you know, I can pretty much stay warm um, as long as I'm moving and working and, um, and then having enough sense if you do get cold hands to run back and forth and wave your arms, <laughs> get the, um, you know. I get... guess there's something to that. Absolutely, yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Seth Cantoner, and he writes about the world he knows in the western Arctic of Alaska, and he cautions the rest of us to the threats of the region's future. His books include A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou, and his debut novel was Ordinary Wolves. You'll find links to articles Seth has written on his website. That's sethkantner.com. So, Seth, you earn your living a number of ways. Uh, you're a fisherman, but you're also a wilderness guide. Tell us about your work as, as a wilderness guide. Well, what I do is I wait for somebody to get a hold of me, which is pretty rare, every couple, maybe uh, once a year or more or less. Um, and I... Um, I guided uh, NASA scientists at the Great Kobuk Sand Dunes here. They were studying correlation between um, dunes on Mars with the dunes here in the Arctic. I guided BBC, I guess. They wanted uh, caribou footage, and I think all all we saw on that trip was a dead mouse. So um, you never know in the Arctic. Well, if I was if I was going to go to Katsubu and and uh, hire you to show, just give me some fun. What do people do for kicks? If I just want to be, I don't want to get frostbite on my face just to fit in at school, but I would like to just have fun the way the locals do. What would be some fun activities? Well, um, I really like taking people out on the on the ice with a you know a snowmobile, uh, making sure they're they're dressed properly and head into the hills across maybe. Um, observe uh, caribou cratering down through the snow to get to the their tundra food supply or, or muskox up on the top of mountains surviving uh, storms. Um, I guess last year the uh, filths and uh, menswear came up and I took them up to uh, photograph muskox in the hills. It was terribly stormy, which to me is uh, is really appealing. I like to show people what the harsh weather can be like and at the same time take care of them enough that they enjoy being out there. If you came in the summer, um, I would hope to take you out commercial fishing for salmon, which is is pretty mm. exciting. Hiking in June in the hills here on uh, low mountains is uh, magical because uh, the sun never sets and the amount of wildflowers is shocking and really harsh, barren ground full of wildflowers. 
and Seth, judging from your book, you're you're clearly clued into the beauty of and the majesty of nature and the importance of taking care of it, and the wisdom and and the beauty of, of making sure the indigenous people are respected and and accommodated. And as a tourist, as a traveler, I want to take home something that broadens my perspective. And as a guide, I think you'd want to contribute to that. So just about out of time in our conversation, but let's wrap it up by uh, having you share what you'd like me to appreciate about our world better from my visit to your corner, way up in the northwest corner of Alaska. What about indigenous people? What should I appreciate about the uh, Eskimos of Alaska? Um, I think uh, here one amazing thing is people's humor when they're out on the land and humor when uh, basically things are not going the way you want them to. And so I think that adaptability to uncertainty is pretty amazing here in the native population. As far as the, the land, I would want you to get out and be on the ground observing something big, even if it's a, you know, a billion mosquitoes biting the pucky out of you. I still would want a person coming north to experience the the largeness of nature here. And by the way, I did say Eskimo, knowing that a lot of people in the lower 48 might be, um, might raise their eyebrows. Can he say Eskimo? But uh, I do understand the native people in Alaska refer to themselves as Eskimo. Uh, certainly in the villages that I'm, you know, spent my life in, yes. Um, I think if you want to just kind of play it safe, Politically correct, Inupak is the word for uh, the local uh, local people here. And if you did say Inuit, which I've heard people try to get me to say, uh, most of the uh, local people I know don't know that word and have never heard it and don't use it. Ah, so that's that, that's just uh, something I'll learn when I when I, when I come to Alaska with a good guide. Also, you're so close to the people and the heritage and the nature. What would I learn about the impact of climate change on your corner of the world by actually visiting that I might not be aware of if I didn't take the initiative to go there and experience it firsthand? Well, Rick, I think it'd be really hard to to land here on uh, you know a plane and and be able to uh, see climate change as well as we can because living here and then living off the land and gathering food from the land, all those changes are in our face and incredibly important. And so if every time you went to Costco, it was either gone or moved somewhere else, then you would uh, be pretty shook up about where Costco went <laughs> or Safeway or whatever. But we wouldn't if we visited, you know, the lower 48 and Costco wasn't where you expect it to be. And and so if you if you came north, I think the vegetation change wouldn't be on your radar. The the fact that there was no ice north of here in the winter when there's traditionally supposed to be all ice, all that is um, sort of terrifying to us, but might not register to you and your wow. fir- your first visit. So you're saying the furniture is all being arranged, the, 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 the whole infrastructure is being arranged when you live close to nature and you know what climate change is doing to the environment in, in an environment like Alaska. Yeah, Northwest Arctic here is supposed to be ground zero for climate change. So we're getting two or three times the maybe the the world average of uh, rapid change. And then we don't have roads, so we travel on ice. So we need the ice to travel on. And if we don't get it, we miss it. <laughs> it's hard to function in a normal way without those 
ice trails. That's an understatement. You miss it. You're you're stopped in your in your muddy tracks without the Ab- ice. Absolutely, yeah. And then the mm-hmm. animals are not migrating the way they used to, and the and the ice is dangerous. You know, there's more people drowning through uh, thin mm-hmm. ice, and yeah. and everything that might not show up. But if you came back more than once, then you probably would be shocked how rapidly things are changing here. Mm-hmm. And finally. Maybe what inspires people to be active about taking care of nature is to experience it in its extreme majesty. I'm flying all the way up to Alaska. I want to have something that that connects me with the grandeur of nature. As a guide, what's one one experience you'd want to be sure that you introduced to me? I would really like you to uh, get up here in September, October, when the caribou are, are migrating and and get yourself in their path and experience just sort of being surrounded by animals on the move, living their their very important own own lives. Mm. And looking at the cover of your book, I see them gathered as if in a piazza of tundra together, a community of caribou. And uh, as we prepare to take that trip to Alaska and experience nature so vividly, people can read your book, A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. Seth Kantner, thank you so much for sharing your corner of the world with us today on Travel with Rick Steves. You're welcome, Rick. I hope to see you up here. I think you will. Seth Kantner describes the pressures of being seen as an outsider to the local culture where he grew up in the Arctic in an extra to today's interview. It's posted at ricksteves.com slash radio. In her just-concluded term as the Washington State Poet Laureate, Rena Priest made it her goal to celebrate the poetry of the state's tribal communities and to strengthen our resolve to appreciate and protect the natural world. Rena is a member of the Lummi Nation, and her most recent poetry collection is called Sublime Subliminal. She joined us in our Travel with Rick Steve studio to read a poem she wrote about the salmon that are a mainstay of the indigenous cultures of the Pacific Northwest. Focus and Circuli, Songs on the Salmon Scale A salmon is a song sung in rounds, a series of concentric circles like a raindrop on the sea, rippling out and returning, a series of concentric circles, a chorus and a verse rippling out and returning in a shining body of treasure, a chorus and a verse, a hero home from adventure, in a shining body of treasure, bearing gifts from the deep, a hero home from adventure, like a raindrop on the sea, bearing gifts from the deep, a salmon is a song sung in rounds. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff, Website uploads are managed by Andrew Wakeling. Jerry Frank wrote and performed our theme music. Thanks to Robert Frazier at Feature Story News in Washington for studio help this week. And we'll look for you again next week with another Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students. It gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. 
Teachers love it. Students do, too. <laughs>